Well, good morning. That was pretty good enthusiasm there, especially, you know what? You survived a thunderstorm of mag majestic proportions last night, so you should be even more thankful you're living today. Good morning. All right, that's spoken like someone from Colorado coming here and during a service, the thunderstorm was, I've forgotten how big those thunderstorms were. I mean, I was thinking our power went out here and lightning's flashing. I, 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 I went over to stand next to Vernon, but I realized he wasn't taller than me, so I realized I wouldn't do any good in the midst of the, all the lightning. So, uh, but it, we, we did survive it. And Arlene and I, uh, my wife went to downtown Winter Park to celebrate that we were still alive after the thunderstorm. And we were strolling along Park Avenue and we came across one of these guys who've seen them in several cities. I call them sidewalk poets. Sometimes they'll have a typewriter. It's an archeological artifact for some of you, you might not remember. Uh, and they'll just type out a poem on the spot. Others have an iPad hooked up to a printer. This guy was old school. He had a pad of paper and a pen and a sign it said, poem at your request. And then he had a jar with some cash in it. And the jar said, tuition. And I walked up to him and I said, so what's the, the tuition for you? He said, Stetson University. I said, um, there we go. And uh, maybe, maybe it was you, somebody raising money for you. Um, and then we talked about the poem. So, and I thought, well, that's a creative way to call somebody giving you a donation for your poem. I said, so how much of the tuition? And, uh, and he starts telling me how much the tuition for Stetson is. I said, no, no, I'm not gonna pay you that much for a poem, but uh, how much for a poem? So he, he said, whatever you think it's worth, but you first have to tell me what you want the poem to be about. Give me the title. So I said, okay, The Mirror. Give me a poem about The Mirror. He said, come back in four and a half minutes. So I came back in five minutes, thought I'd give him a little extra time. And here's what Paul from Stetson University wrote. When I look into the mirror, I think of many questions, like why, why does that person look at me so much? With every passing second, I feel as though we grow nearer, me and that strange band I see so often in the mirror. Put it in my pocket, walked away and smiled. A couple of things came to mind as I was reflecting on it. One is that poem is actually a vision statement for you and me as distributed churches. And I'll get to that in just a minute. The other thing that occurred to me is how we all, when we hear the word mirror, we immediately think it's revealing our own reflection. But that's not always the case. I've got a mirror over here and some of you are thinking, wow, that guy wants to look at himself during the message. No, I just want you to look at me. And uh, sir, tell me your name. What? Joey? Jeremy. Are you glad you sat in the front row? Okay, still. So Jeremy, are you looking at me right now or the mirror? But do you see me? But I'm not the mirror. I'm different from the mirror, but my presence is necessary for you to see me in the mirror, right? You got it? So let's close in prayer. 
Just kidding, let's let God's word illuminate that little reality that mirrors don't always reflect the person. They could be reflecting something else. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. This is in creation when God makes you and me. Then God said, let us, meaning this beautiful unity of the Godhead, the Trinity, let us make mankind in our what? Image. In our image, in our likeness, in our reflectiveness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. You and I, part of the beauty of the gospel is the significance with which we can approach life instead of being lucky results of some protoplasmic evolutionary accident. We're created, and we're created with a purpose. And the purpose is to mirror God. You're an image of God, you're an image of God. You're an image of God, you're an image of God. We're to reflect him, we're to mirror him. So let me give you an equation. It's not a mathematical equation, I'm terrible at those but a fulfillment equation. It's a fulfillment equation for you as an individual when the alarm rings to know what is my significance and what is my purpose. It's also a fulfillment equation for us as a community of followers of Jesus known as distributed churches all over the world. And the equation is this, imageness, you're saying that's not a word, it is now, I have the microphone, I just made it a word, all right? Imageness, is the result, or imageness equals, or imageness is the sum total of life plus heart. Now, if you've got that, and you feel confident in it, you can leave, but if you want us to talk about it a little bit more, we will. Let's go through those components one at a time. Imageness is something that is not a sidebar reality of your existence. It is the reason that you and I have hearts that are beating, lungs that are breathing. And in creation, God fashioned us, not out of some ego need, he fashioned us because he was crowning creation with the caretakers, with the reflectors, with the mirrors, of who he is. We're not God, we're different than God, but he made us so that he could be seen in us. And that is the pinnacle of a human being's fulfillment when that's firing on all cylinders. But the problem is a distortion happened, rebellion. So we all good, we all have PhDs in it, rebelling against God's rule in our lives, saying, God, I don't need you to be a normal human being. I don't need you to be a fulfilled human being. I can do that on my own, thank you very much. That happened in the garden. And when that happened, the result of that rebellion was a distortion. 
a distortion of this imageness that God had made. So Jeremy, let me ask you a question. Did this cease to be a mirror as a result of the distortion that you see on it now? Still a mirror. Can you still see me? But it's distorted. That's fallen humanity. We're all still imago Dei in the image of God. We're all still mirrors, reflections, but it's muted, it's distorted, it's truncated. Not only is God glorified less in who we are, we are also fulfilled less as human beings. We don't get it. Last week I was flying from, Colorado, from Denver down to Colorado Springs. It's a very short flight and therefore this is one of those small planes that's held together by band-aids. You guys have been on those? It was low to the ground, but I got a bird's eye view of something that I hadn't seen in quite a while. A couple of years ago, two wildfires encroached in Colorado Springs, one in June of 2012, one in June of 2013. The first one was in Mountain Shadows, my neighborhood. We thought our house was gone actually for a while. The second was in an area called the Black Forest. And the unique part of, about the Black Forest area is that each home is on a five acre lot, a five acre wooded lot. So the devastation of Mountain Shadows fire was 346 homes, that was bad enough. One year later, because of drought conditions, over 550 homes in the Black Forest area were consumed, each a five acre lot. So in the, on this flight, I'm down low and I'm looking at two things. The immensity of the devastation. But I also was looking at the immensity of the restoration. what God's word gives to us. Doesn't whitewash the devastation. Doesn't try to gloss over the reality of this distortedness with which we try to do life. We try to fulfill our original purpose as mirrors, but we're distorted. But God's word also gives us a flyby, an overview of the immensity and the beauty and the grace of the restoration that happens in our imageness. When I embrace the gospel of Jesus and, and come to the cross and, and confess that God, I want to relate with you through Jesus and may his death on the cross be credited to my bankrupt condition spiritually. At that moment, my rebellion and the resulting distortion that that rebellion has caused is forgiven. I'm totally accepted in the beloved. I, he, he embraces me in my distorted humanness. And he embraces me in spite of the rebellion that caused that distortion, but it doesn't stop there. Then a journey, some call it spiritual growth, some will use a fancy word called sanctification. But over the course of my journey, something is happening. Hear God's word, 2 Corinthians, chapter three, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Now listen, we're reflecting his glory. 
Are we doing it completely and perfectly? No, but there's something going on on Monday mornings and Thursday afternoons at parties and at funerals and at work. If we are in Christ and we are submitting to his shaping in our lives, we are being transformed into his what? His likeness, his icon, his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the spirit. Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. You want to know, a lot of us wonder, what's my purpose? Hmm. You've been called according to his purpose. You don't want to know what that purpose is? For God, those, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, and here it is, to be conformed to the image, to the icon of his son. So it's a process. Growing in Jesus is him transforming us little by little into what we were meant to be. Now this process doesn't get complete until the new day, the new heaven, the new earth. Then all distortion will be wiped away. But in the meantime, cortex for this weekend, Colossians chapter three, verse nine, verse 10. Since you've taken off your old self, your old, the Greek word there is anthropos, your, your, your old humanity with its practices, and have put on the new self, the new anthropos, the new humanity, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the what? In the what? In the image, being renewed in the image, in the icon of its creator. This is what's happening in my life. This is what's happening in your life. And a year from now, there, be, there should be less distortion, but sometimes we have bad years. We go backwards. Grace still reigns. God still embraces us and he still beckons us to in our, in our families, mirror him to each other, in our workplaces to mirror him to each other, in our, in our recreation in our laughter, in our communities, wherever there might be a distributed church. You guys know the identity statement for the distributed church? I am us for them there. You guys remember that? Okay, uh, let's cover something here. If you don't respond to that question with a little bit more enthusiasm, there are tons of pastors and staff that are just gonna submit their resignations because they've been pouring this in to you guys. All right, so let's try that again. I am us for them there. Does that sound familiar? There yes. we go. It's the great I am who's created us in his image to be I am as disciples of Jesus in community, imaging him, reflecting him. And then my buddy Paul, he gives us a vision statement. For those people in your workplace or those people in your neighborhood where you as a distributed church, not just as one mirror, but several are gathered together. And the more mirrors, ideally the more reflection. Let's see if this applies. When I look into the mirror, I think of many questions like, why does that person look at me so much? And this time that person is God. God looking at those people in your life through the reflection of you. And with every passing second, I feel as though he and I grow nearer 
me and that stranger I see so often in the mirror. May that be so for you, for me, for us as the distributed church everywhere. Now, back in the January, we began this series. Really, it's a series of series, teaching series. First, we talked about becoming a disciple. Remember that? Then we talked about belonging to a family of families. Remember that? Then we moved into participating in the mission of the church. Remember that? And then last week we started, okay, what is the engine of it all? Cultivating habits of the heart. And Pastor Jeff did an amazing job settling us into the reality that our heart is to become Christ's home. And you say, okay, I get that, but what does my heart have to do with this imageness? I'm glad you asked, so let's continue with our equation. We've got the sum total there. Imageness. Now let's back up to see two primary components of that being fulfilled. And which is just introductory this week and we'll continue next weekend. But imageness is a result of life plus heart. So let's look at this issue of life. And you're saying, okay, what about it? I'm saying, well, life is necessary for us to image God. You need to be alive to image God. You're saying, well, okay, I got that, but... That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. No, I'm not talking about heart beating, lung breathing life. I'm talking about something that goes deeper in who you are as a follower of Jesus or who you're going to be when you become a follower of Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, reminder, you're still a Mago Day. That's how beauty and creativity and, and laughter and work and all of these reflections of God can happen in anyone's life, even if they're not a follower of Jesus. But when we become a follower of Christ, we're all of a sudden equipped to image him as we've never been equipped before because we are made alive. Do you know what it was at the heartbeat, at the core of the tragedy in Genesis in the fall? is Satan accusing God of being a liar because God said, I've created you in my image. Your fulfillment as a human being will be in mirroring me, but these are the parameters I want you to walk in. You know, obedience in scripture is not just this legalistic rule keeping. That's not biblical heart throbbing Christianity. That's religiosity. God says, obey me, follow my parameters so that you can mirror me so that you can be fulfilled as a human being, as a human being is meant to be made. So he said, if you don't do this, you will die. Satan comes along and says, Genesis chapter three, verse four. Haunting. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman. So they rebelled, said, God, we can be a normal, human being without you. Did they die? And you're saying that's a trick question. Well, not really, but sort of. I'm sure they thought it just like you and I think it. After we rebel, a big, little, a public, private, uh, something we do or something we don't do. When we rebel, you know, it's the kind of this, well, I survived that. Adam and Eve did the same thing. They rebelled and said, Maybe the serpent was right, I'm still living. 
but they had died. You see, biblically, God doesn't determine whether a human being is alive or not just because our heart is beating or our lungs are breathing. That's why Jesus made that cryptic statement in Luke chapter 9, verse 60. He was calling disciples, and this one person said, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus made this statement. He said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. For years, I wondered, what? No, what's up with that? But then you start looking at the context of this great theme of the scriptures, and it's about human beings being made alive, and it starts to make sense. Jesus was saying, let those who are dead at their core, in their spirit, in their soul, in their heart, bury those who are dead in the same way, but also dead physically. So after the rebellion and we died, God had the option to, to destroy creation and start over or to glorify himself by breathing life back into creation. So you see this throughout the scriptures, throughout prophecy about the coming of Messiah. You guys know some of them, you've heard them in Isaiah. We're living in the land of the shadow of death upon, uh, the, the people living in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That sound familiar? We think those are references to hospital rooms and foxholes and battlefields, and it's just when physical death is threatening. No, that we are living in the land of the shadow of death every day. When you and I got leave, wherever we're worshiping right now and go, we're going out into the land of the shadow of death because death cloaks creation. Creation groans, but it's still beautiful. Uh, death cloaks all of humanity, but we still are capable of beautiful things. But the agenda of the gospel is not to give you and me something to do on a Sunday morning or to change the box we check on the, in the, in, on the census under religious preferences and make it Christian. The gospel is about bringing you and me to life. I refer to it in my book as life with a capital L, not just heart beating life. One of my favorite prophecies in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37. This is a messianic prophecy about the coming of Jesus. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. This is regarding the Messiah. It was full of bones and he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry, bones that had been at one time living beings until the rebellion and the distortion happened. Then he asked me, by the way, Jesus' favorite term for himself was son of man. Hear why. He asked me, verse three, Ezekiel 37, son of man, can these bones live? God says of you, can she live? Can he live? <laughs> Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy. 
prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to those bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That is the gospel. That's why John, when he describes Jesus, he said, hey guys, here's a pretty cool religious guy. Get to know him. No, when John introduces Jesus in his gospel, John chapter one, verse four, in Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. It's why Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, he summarizes his purpose. In your journey and in the journey of all humanity, he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That is a direct contrast to Genesis chapter three, verse four, when Satan stole and, and, and was a thief and killed as at the core of our humanity. And Jesus is announcing that promise that was made in Genesis chapter three of resurrecting these dead bones. He says, the thief will steal, will kill and destroy you and your imageness and your fulfillment as a human being. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Not just heart beating life, not just lung breathing life, not just an abundant Christian life, but an abundant human life that glorifies God that images God, that reflects him, which is the hard cry of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter two, verse four, this is to the ecclesia, the distributed church in Ephesus. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us impressively religious. Huh. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. It's why Jesus in John chapter five, verse 24, he says, I'll tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life at that moment. Life, life with a capital L. Not only am I I'm made alive, but I'm made alive along with you. We're brought together as a church. What's the word church mean? In Greek, it's ekklesia, the called out community. It means to be called out. Called out from what? Yes, we're called out of fallen humanity, but more specifically, we're called out of the valley of the shadow of death. We're called out from the valley of dead, dry bones. We're called out from the shell of our humanity to be made alive again. Colossians chapter one, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus in his resurrection was risen, not just to give you and me hope for heaven, which is very, very true and beautiful, but he, he, he rose again to say, come follow me in the land of the living. You, Follow me as the firstborn who's reclaimed your humanity, which is why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. 
That's who you and I are. We're the church of the firstborn from among the dead. But you go to a lot of churches, you don't sense that. I don't know if that ever occurred to you. Amazing. When I hear people say, ah, I went to that church, it's pretty dead. I think that is as ironic, tragically ironic as possible. Why is that? Why do so many churches go through the motion, punch the card, went to church, did that, move on? Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I think the reason so many churches seem dead is because we know what it means a little to engage with Jesus' way, meaning we're good at behavior, sometimes in really unhealthy ways in legalistic religiosity. That's not good, but, but even in obedience, we're, we're good at Jesus is the way and doing stuff. We're, we're good at relating with Jesus as the truth because we're big on do doctrine and theology appropriately so, but it wasn't a multiple choice. It wasn't take one of these three. It was take all three, way, truth, so that we can be life. And the beauty of the distributed church engaging with Jesus' way, truth, and life is a community of living reflections of the living God. And at the core of that is something we'll move into next week, but I'll mention it now, is your heart. Remember, imageness, my fulfillment as a human being, and God's glory in my life is the result of life and heart. So for me to image God, I need to be alive. But for me to be alive, I need a new heart. And I need a heart that's growing and throbbing with the life of God. That passage in Ezekiel 37, the context of that at the end of Ezekiel 36 is God saying, I will put my spirit in them and give them a new heart. And then the, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones is, to, is the, a metaphor to illustrate what does a new heart look like? It means coming alive. So when I come to Christ, I'm given a new heart because it's the heart. I'm not referring to, and we'll talk about this next week, it's not just my emotions. It is the core and the centerpiece of my humanity. And if I'm not engaging with God on a heart level, I'm missing his life. 2 Corinthians. Once you get there, turn to Ephesians. Chapter four, verse 18, Ephesians 4, 18. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. When my heart is hard, I miss the life of God. When my heart is dead, I miss the life of God. And so often, guys, we're going through our lives saying, okay, this is what I need to be a fulfilled human. This bank account balance, this particular spouse, this particular job, or this particular promotion at work, or this particular degree, or this particular hobby, or this particular vacation. Uh, we, we, we're going everywhere except to the one place that will give us life. We want, in our core, we want that imageness there. We want to fulfill our imageness. To do that, I need to be made alive. To be made alive, my heart needs to be alive, and then I've got to start cultivating habits 
of life in my heart. But at the core of that is Jesus. Not as a religious figurehead, but as the one who comes to give you and me a new heart, taking out that, as Ezekiel says, that heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And as we'll start looking at next week, cultivating those habits under his leadership that will make us alive and that will image God as individuals and as a community. But so often, we think our little solutions, it's no different than was in the garden, we think our little solution will give us life. We're saying, you know what, I don't want to mess around with church. I, I, got more, I, got, I, I really want to, to, to be alive, and church ain't it. Really? It's because we've missed the gospel. In fact, C.S. Lewis, right, she says, you know what, given the staggering nature of rewards and the unblushing, and unblushing promises of reward in the gospels, it would seem like our Lord finds our desires not too weak, but too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling around, thinking for, fooling around for our fulfillment, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're actually, he says, like a, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't understand what's meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. So my exhortation to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is do not be too easily pleased. Say, I want full imageness going on in my life. Say, I want throbbing life with a capital L going on in my journey. Say, I want a heart that's shaped and molded by the Holy Spirit. And therefore say, more than anything, I want Jesus. We've forgotten what we're longing for. We forget that ultimately it's Jesus. In 1931, Tennessee Williams penned a short story called Something by Tolstoy. It's about Jacob, a shy, diminutive little Russian Jew in his early teens. And he has a girlfriend named Leela, an exuberant French girl. And they're growing more and more in love. And then it's about time for him to be done with his equivalent of high school, and he tells his dad he wants to marry Leela and help him manage the bookshop. You see, Jacob's dad was a bookstore owner. His dad said, nope, you're going to college. He says, I want to marry Leela. He says, no, you're going to college. He goes to college just within a couple of months. His dad tragically and suddenly dies. He comes back to take over the management of the bookshop, marries Leela. They move into the apartment above the bookstore. And Jacob couldn't be happier, but Leela couldn't be more miserable. She was restless. She had a beautiful voice. A touring vaudeville company came through town, and the manager of that vaudeville company heard Leela sing at, at a little club, and he said, you need to come with me and tour Europe and let people hear your voice. She thinks that's a great idea, and she informs Jacob she's leaving him. It cleaves a chasm-sized hole in his heart. 
And somehow he musters the words to say, what we have is real. Even though you're leaving me, one day you'll remember it. And he puts a skeleton key, the key to the bookshop, in her small hand and presses her fingers over it and says, you keep this key as a reminder that any day you can return to me. She goes off singing in Europe. He goes to the back of his bookshop and pours himself into books like somebody would turn to alcohol or drugs. A year passes, three years, seven years, nine years, 12 years, 15 years go by. And the bell over the bookshop front door rings, signifying as it has hundreds of times that a new customer has arrived. Jacob gets up from his desk in the back of the bookshop, walks to the front of the store, and it's Leela. But Jacob doesn't recognize her. He just greets her like he does any other customer. Hi, may I help you? Leela is shocked that her husband doesn't recognize her. She backs up, stammers, puts a gloved hand up to her, her, her face and stammers out, uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm looking for a book. What's it about? She says, well, I can't remember the title, but could I tell you the story and maybe you could help me? He says, certainly. Then she tells him the story of, that's their story how they met when they were children and fell in love and how he went away to college and his father died and this young man came back and, and, and took over the management of the bookstore and he married this sweetheart and they moved into a bookshop, the, the apartment above the bookshop and how he was very, very happy and she was miserable and how she had foolishly left him to tour Europe and how she had this skeleton key that reminded her every day of, of what she yearned for. And finally she came back and she culminated her story in tears saying, surely you remember that's the story of Jacob and Leela. He doesn't register. Instead, with a vacant look, he says, hmm. It must be something by Tolstoy. And he turns and walks back to the bookshop to check the catalog. And the only other sound to accompany his footsteps on that hard wooden floor was the sobs of an unrecognized wife and the metallic echo of a key on that same wooden floor. Jacob had forgotten what he was longing for. In the name of Jesus, please don't do the same. In the name of Jesus, remember your ultimate need is Jesus. To give you a new heart, to give you life, to give you an ex the imageness that's necessary for full humanity. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for hungry hearts. And I lift these men and women up to you and ask that you would allow them right now to own up to their ultimate need, which is for restored imageness, for life with a capital L, for heart of flesh instead of heart of stone. Ultimately, Jesus.
I'd like to ask you, if you would, just stay in a posture of prayer just for a couple more minutes. And would you do this? Would you open your palms? Just open your palms and put them on your lap. Don't need to stand yet. Our body posture says a lot. We've asked Michelle to sing over you and over me and really to pray over us. With your open palms staring at them, I want you to think about what you ultimately need and what you ultimately want and need God to give you.